end of a busy day at school or whatever. You know, home for you is simply crashing on the couch, making a, a cup of tea, throwing on some slippers, you know, switching on some Netflix. That's, and, and in that moment, you're like, I am home, right? That kind of experience. Or maybe for you, home is this kind of more of a transient place. Right? You feel more at home when you're sitting on the deck of the cottage or you're walking down a, you know, a beach and it's just you know, by the water and you're like, oh man. Like in that moment, you're like, I am home. This is good stuff. Right? Or maybe for some people, I know for some people, home is more about who you're hanging out with than it is where you're located. Right? So maybe you're sitting on a patio somewhere with your closest friends, you're eating some barbecue, and in that moment, you're experiencing that thing called home in your heart. And you're like, yes, these people... I could go anywhere with these people and I'd be at home. And, uh, and, and I was thinking about this, this thing of home. And, you know, for me, home really conjures up images of my childhood, right? I know I tell you guys a lot of stories of my childhood. And that's because for me, home was always this really great place. It was full of encouragement. It was full of hope. It was full of support. And just, you know, it was a beautiful place to be. And maybe for you, home is kind of this place where you look back and you think, hey, I was so blessed to have the home that I had. I was so blessed with my family. I was so blessed with, you know, the support and the encouragement that I got from my home. And so you have fond memories of that. And then for other people in the room, I know that, you know, because of our generation, because of our world and the society that we live in, we're in this environment right now where it's like, actually, there are people growing up that really, when they think back to home, home for them was a bad place. You know, it was, it was just not a fun place to be. It was a place where they felt, you know, put down. They felt condemned. They felt, you know, discouraged. And, uh, and they never really experienced the true life that's supposed to be in a home. But, uh, you know, I was thinking about, you know, as Pastor Julie mentioned, my, my mom and dad come from England tomorrow. I am so excited. I am pumped up about that. And uh, it's been like a couple of years since I saw them face to face. I mean, like we Skype right? But Skype doesn't capture it for, for me, right? Like, I mean, you get to actually hang out with someone. It's so good. And so I'm excited for my kids to spend time with their grandparents. Like, I think it's a beautiful thing. And, um, but I was thinking about my mom and dad, and, you know, they were so encouraging for me. You know, they were one of those, just those people that just build you up, and they support you, and they're always like, John, chase after your dreams, right? But, you know, the reality is that just because you have a good home doesn't mean to say you don't face challenges, right? And, uh, and so I was thinking about, you know, my home life, and uh, I know you probably wouldn't guess this about me, but when I kind of got to my early to mid-teen years, I kind of got really vocal and really opinionated and kind of a bossy boots. And so, you know, we would have these conversations, conversations where basically like it was my opinion versus the rest of the world, right? And so the problem was that my mom and my dad and my sister are also pretty strong leaders. And so when you have four strong leaders in a house and you're all really stubborn and like hard-nosed, the conversations uh, tend to get a little bit rowdy. Anybody got a house like that where it's like your conversations are not really conversations, they are yelling matches? And so it's not about whether your opinion gets heard, it's just that, is it the loudest? Can you get it over 100 decibels is kind of where we were at. And, uh, and so we would just kind of, you know, we'd be shouting and yelling and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because wherever you've come from, whatever kind of home you've had, every home has some kind of culture. Right? Every home has a culture. And whether you live with your family, with your siblings, your parents, maybe you live with housemates from, from school or from work, you know, or maybe, uh, maybe even you live by yourself. Right? But we all have a set of values and, and, and behaviors that form the way that we do life. And, uh, and I was thinking about this. And you know, for some people, you know, when it comes to the culture of their home, they're really, really intentional about that stuff. Right? And all you've got to do is get into a conversation with someone who's passionate about like 
feng shui or something like that. And they're like, they are doing everything they can to get the best possible atmosphere. And they're like, no, 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 man. You've got to move that couch like an inch to the right because that way you're going to get like way more pumped up in the morning. I'm like, all right, that's cool. Um, but then for other people, like, you know, you may not really have thought about the culture of your home before, right? The atmosphere of your life before. And, uh, and you know, one of the biggest challenges for me since becoming a dad has been thinking and learning how am I going to shape the atmosphere of the home that my kids are growing up in, right? Because it's a really challenging thing. And Angela and I have conversations all the time about what we want our kids to grow up like. What, what kind of atmosphere do we want them to experience growing up? And, uh, and you know, it's kind of, it's kind of a, a crucial thing to understand, you know, when you, especially when you have young kids. Like we have Ben, for example, who's in school. He's five years old. And it doesn't matter the kind of culture sometimes that we set at home, but he will rock up from school having spent time around culture from a different house, right? And he will bring in that culture, and all of a sudden he's like saying stuff. I'm like, yo, that's not, that's not what we do in our house, right? This is not who we are. And, uh, and so it's really important for us to set that culture in our house and say, no, this is who we are, and this is what we are about. And these are the values and the behaviors that we are going to uphold as a family. And, you know, the crucial thing to understand about culture is that the culture in our homes and the atmosphere around our lives will almost always be shaped by the condition of our hearts, right? Almost always. And you see, the Bible has a ton to say about that, that reality. And, uh, you know, you start in the Old Testament, you have Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. And some of you might know this passage, but Solomon's talking and he says, Above all else, guard your, what? Your heart. He says, guard your heart. Because everything, not some things, everything you do flows from it. That's a pretty big statement, right? Everything you do is flowing out of what's going on right here. And then he jumps down to Proverbs 27 and he says, As water reflects the face, so one's life reflects the heart. So one's life reflects the heart. And then you jump to the New Testament and even Jesus is on this boat. And he's like, yo, you got to listen up. And he says in Luke chapter 6, he says, A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. But an evil person produces evil treasure from, from the treasury of an evil heart. And then he says, out of the overflow of your heart, your mouth speaks. And what he's trying to get at is he's saying, sooner or later, whether you like it or not, the stuff that's going on in your heart is going to make itself known on the canvas of your life. Whether that's the canvas of your marriage, whether that's the canvas of your workplace, whether that's the canvas of your family, whether that's the canvas of your home or your church is going to show up. And you see, just like any other home, the church has a culture, right? The house of God has a culture. When you think about the church you grew up in, you know, I, I've experienced a lot of different churches, especially in England, and there's, there's some crazy culture, right? And, and when you think about the church down the street or you think about maybe the church that you watch online, even our church right here, we have a culture. We have something that we say, no, this is who we are. This is our atmosphere. This is what we are about. And you see, just like with our homes, you know, if I allow Ben to come in and to just do whatever he wants, if I, if I don't watch and, and, and if I leave unnurtured the culture of the house, right, then all of a sudden it becomes about something that's not us. And in the same way, the house of God has a culture. And if we're not careful and we don't nurture that culture, then actually what it ends up doing is becoming more about what's going on in our heart than what's going on in the heart of God. And you see, we've got to be so careful. We've got to be so careful because church, all of a sudden, can become about my plans, right? My agenda, my baggage, my opinions, instead of being based 
and founded on God's power, right? And God's plans and God's principles. And so if we're truly going to have a heart for the house, it's got to start from a place of understanding the heart of the one whose house it actually is. You've got to get that. You've got to get the heart of the one who, whose house it is. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 15. And uh, we're going to take a look at a passage of Scripture that for me really captures the heart and the spirit of, of this idea, what we're talking about. You see, in this passage we find Jesus and he's challenging the thinking of some of the religious leaders of his day, known as the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were this Jewish sect that basically, you know, they were incredibly, uh, incredibly strict when in their obedience to the Old Testament. And, and they were incredibly devout and, and just very disciplined in their life, in the way that they did, did their life. But, the, but the, what happened was that their strict obedience and their, you know, their obedience to the law and their legalism actually caused them to develop this critical spirit. And so they started to, you know, point fingers and belittle those around them that they considered to be less spiritual, right, or less holy, which is exactly the kind of people that Jesus went and spent time with, right? You read, read, you read through the Gospels, Jesus is always hanging out with the people that the, the leaders, like the, the religious leaders, considered to be less spiritual. And so Luke, this author, he's telling us this story, and he says, hey, like when the Pharisees saw Jesus spending time with people who were considered disreputable, what, he was actually, what, what Luke says is that these guys, these Pharisees, started grumbling. They started complaining because for them, as Jews, they considered that the grace of God was only for them, right? They, didn't, they were like, no, it doesn't, it's not for anybody else, right? It's not for the Gentiles, not for the non-Jews. It's just for us as Jews. And it was inconceivable to them that they would actually see this man, this holy man, Jesus, right? Who was a rabbi, a teacher in his day, that he would actually go and spend time and make himself unclean by spending time with unclean people. They didn't like that. And so they got frustrated and they started to grumble, they started to complain. And so what happens is Jesus overhears this and all of a sudden he starts telling the crowd, right? He's speaking to the, to the Pharisees, but he's talking to the crowd too, right? And he starts to tell this series of stories. And, uh, you know, you might know a couple of them. He starts out by talking about the lost sheep, right? And there's this farmer who's got sheep and the sheep, one of the 99, uh, he's got 99 sheep on the one side of the hill and the one sheep wanders away, Right? And so what does he do? He, he leaves the 99, he goes, goes after the one, brings it back home. And then he goes on, he tells a story about a lost coin. And this woman has a, a valuable coin and she loses it in her house. So what she does, she sweeps the whole house in order to find this coin. When she finds it, she celebrates, right? And then the third story is a story that Jesus tells about a father losing his son. And I would love it if you'd start with me, Luke chapter 15, uh, starting at verse 11. It's going to be up on the screen here. Beautiful. There you go. And it says this, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Get, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the youngest son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to, feed, to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. 
So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother's come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he, was, he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you, fi- you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we, we, had, we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost, and now he is found. And you know, I love the heart of the dad in this passage. Now, I don't know about you, but when I consider the possible, you know, uh, the possible responses that this dad could have had to his, his sons, I'm surprised that he didn't like rip them to shreds. Like, honestly. Like, I, I sit there and I'm like, dude, are you clueless right now? Like, I, you know, I, I just sometimes wonder, man, if, Jonah, if Ben and Jonas, my two boys, decided to do some of this stuff to me, I'm, I'm not sure I'd have a gracious response. You know what I'm saying? I mean, first of all, you've got this younger son who comes to his dad and just says, yo, dad, give me my share of the inheritance. Which is basically the same as saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Please give me what is actually going to be mine when you're dead, when you're done, right? Go kick the bucket, just I want the cash, right? And then he goes off, he squanders all this wealth and this finance on wild living, right? Realizes what he's done, knows he's screwed up, and so he then has the audacity to not only come back, but to try and like reason his way into his dad's, like his good books, but also onto his payroll, right? He was like, Dad, just hire me back, you can pay me, it's all good, right? Not to mention then you have the attitude of the older brother and all this stuff. And I'm just like, man, these boys need some serious, you know, discipline. You know what I'm saying? Like they need some, they need some love. But you see, the first thing that we need to understand here, and if you're taking notes, you can throw this one on your, on your page. But we need to understand that the heart of the house is defined by the heart of the father. The heart of the house is defined by the heart of the father. You see, this passage paints an incredible picture of the heart of God. You know, I don't know, like I said before, I don't know what kind of experience you had growing up. I don't know what your home looked like. I don't know what your experience of your dad was. You know, maybe, you know, like me, you're able to say, yeah, I had a great dad. He was there. He was consistent. He was supportive, encouraging, all that stuff. Or maybe for you, you're like, my dad was around, but he was a real jerk. And I, and I hear that, right? Like, I know. I've, I've worked with young people whose, whose parents have been that way. And maybe for some of us in the room, and this is a very real dynamic in our culture too, maybe you didn't even know your, your earthly dad. You've never had an, an, an encounter with him because he kind of, you know, he, he left. He's just done, it, done his thing and gone, right? But here's the thing, is that in this, in this passage, we have a picture of our heavenly dad. And literally in, in Galatians, the Bible uses this word Abba, Abba Father, which when you translate it literally means daddy, right? We have this daddy who is God, our heavenly dad, who is kind and he's compassionate and he's generous and he's patient and he's forgiving. 
And in those moments where he could have slammed his kids for being completely dumb, I mean, let's be honest, they were completely dumb, right? Instead, he chooses to love them and to encourage them and to embrace them right where they're at. And I want you guys to notice what happens in verse 25. You see, the, the, the younger son's gone, right? He's done, his, he's done his thing. He's squandered the wealth and he's come back. And as soon as the dad sees him, he runs to him, throws his arms around him, but then he actually says to his servants, hey, yo, let's, let's throw a party. We've got to celebrate because my son has come home. And what you notice in verse 25 is that because the heart of the dad is full of joy and celebration, that his house is also full of joy and celebration, right? The heart of the house reflected the heart of the father. And you see, as a church, our desire is that we always do what we can to reflect the heart of our God, the heart and the spirit of the God that we belong to. Not just the God that we worship, not just the God that we serve, but the God that we belong to. You see, when you think about the, the, the position of a son, a son belongs to his father. There is, a, there is a relationship there. It's not just about doing, it's about being. And you see, we desire as a church to be generous because our God is generous, right? He truly is. We want to be passionate because our God is passionate. He's given everything to see you and me come home. We desire to celebrate the lost coming home because our God delights in the lost coming home. And you see, I pray that first and foremost, above everything else, that our church and this, the heart of this house is one that resonates with the heart of the Father. And I, I really honestly pray that with everything. But you know, the second thing that I want us to notice here is that despite the heart of the Father, I mean, the, the dad did everything, right, for his kids. But despite the heart of the father, both brothers, sometimes we only focus on one brother or the other, but actually both brothers misunderstood the heart of the, of, of the house. They misunderstood the heart of their dad. So if you take the younger son for an example, right, after he's been away and he's squandered all his dad's wealth, we see him try and reason his way back into his dad's good books, right, back onto that payroll, not as an equal, not as a son, but as a servant, as a slave. And in verse 18 and 19, he says, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you and I am no longer worthy. That's his confession. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. You see, what he failed to grasp, and you can write this one down, is that the heart of the house is one of sonship, not of slavery. The heart of the house is about sonship, not about slavery. You see, what we can do for God will always be less important than who we are to God. I'll say that one more time. What you and I can do for God will always, always be less important than who we are to God. He has called us to be his sons and his daughters first. And you see, I want you to hear what I'm saying this morning. As a church, we are passionate about giving all that we are and all that we have to see God's kingdom built, to see God's church built, right? We believe if you're sitting in this room that you have, a, you, you, you have been given so much that we can actually use to make a way for other people to encounter the love of God, right? When it comes to your time, when it comes to your treasure, when it comes to your talents, all those things God has put in your hand to make a way for others, right? But I believe that we miss the point completely if we think that our serving and our giving put points on the scoreboard for us when it comes to God's love for us, right? See, God loves us completely. He's never going to love you anymore because he's already expressed the completeness of his love to you in Jesus. And you see, when we serve and we give because we're trying to get God to love us more, we're missing the point. We're misunderstanding the heart of the house. We're misunderstanding the heart of the Father. 
You see, God's love cannot be earned. It cannot be earned. And so I, I pray that the heart of our house is, yes, that we give and yes, that we serve, but that we do it first from a place of knowing whose we are, who we belong to, that we know God's love for us. And actually, instead of serving from thirst, we serve from thankfulness. You see, when we serve from thankfulness, it's coming out of gratitude. It's saying, no, I'm giving back to God because of what he's already done. When we serve from thirst, we're saying, I have to do this in order for God to love me. And there is an incredible difference. And you see, sometimes we don't realize what we're doing until we burn out and we're like, oh man, where's God gone? But what we don't realize, like Pastor Julius said, we've got to start from a place of thankfulness. We've got to start from that place of gratitude. And you see, we see the, that slavery mindset in the younger brother, but we see it in the older brother too. See, the older brother is out, in the work, out working in the field, right? And he hears this hullabaloo. Everyone say hullabaloo. Hullabaloo. He hears this hullabaloo going on, and he's like, yo, what's the noise about? And the servant of the house says, hey, yeah, like your brother's come home. It's awesome. Your dad's throwing this big party. We're all pumped. And then what do you see in verse 28? It says that the older brother refused to go in because he was angry. He was angry. He didn't like what was going on. And I want to read to you verse 29. It says, the dad comes out, right? So he's, he's, you know, the, the older brother's refused to go in the house. The dad comes out. Like a good dad, tries to sit him down, reason with him, help him work it through. Look at what the older brother says. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you. Like, whoa. This is, this is the son of the dad. And he's like, no, I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. And then catch what he says. But when this son of yours, like that's a stinger right there. Not my, when my brother comes out. No, no. When this son of yours comes back and has squandered all of your property with prostitutes and all this other stuff, you kill the fattened calf for him. Like this, guy, this, this guy was bitter. There was bitterness in this guy's heart. And you see, the older brother was so caught up in the task of running the house that he had allowed his heart to become hard and callous and insensitive. And you see, when the younger brother comes home, the older brother is so focused on his younger brother getting what's coming to him that he misses the heart of what it actually means to be family. He didn't understand, and you can write this one down, that the heart of the house is about restoration, not retribution. Restoration, not retribution. You see, often in our culture, at the church, sadly, is known more for what it's against than what it stands for. You know, our pastor, Brian Houston, he says that the church is called to be an outpost of grace. But actually, what it tends to be known as, right, is, this, is all these things, oh, we're against this, we're against that, we hate this, we hate that. And, you know, I believe that we are called to bring hope and encouragement to every single person, regardless of their background, regardless of their history, regardless of their mistakes. And you see, the reason I believe that is because the heart of the house is wrapped up in the person of Jesus. You see, the cause of the church, it's been made about a lot of different things, right? It's been made about social justice. It's been made about, you know, getting a big, a big auditorium and big buildings and all these different things and you know, there are things attached to the house for sure. You know, we want to be making a difference in the community. We, we need big buildings to house all the people that are coming in and encountering God. All that stuff is really good, right? Releasing albums, all that stuff is really good. But it always has to flow from the first, from the heart of knowing who Jesus is and what Jesus stands for. And you see, when we miss 
the heart of Jesus, when we separate the heart of the house from the house itself, then actually we miss what the church is supposed to be. See, I mentioned earlier, you know, we've got my mom and dad coming tomorrow. And so, you know, we're pumped. It's going to be an amazing week. We're excited. But it also means that my beautiful wife, Ange, has gone into like hyper preparation mode. Any, any, any women in the house, like, you know, when you've got someone coming, maybe even the guys. Sometimes, I know some guys that are like this, right? And it's like, you got somebody coming, a guest or whoever, and you're like, I've got to make a good impression. I've got to make sure that everything's clean, everything's perfect, because, you know, that's the representation of my real life. I tell you what, my mom and dad know what it means to live in a messy house because they raised me, right? But here's the thing, right? So, so my beautiful wife, you know, she went hard and she's like, oh, I've got to make sure this is clean. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. My mother-in-law came up and she's like helping clean. And I'm like, yo, what is going on? Like I'm stuck in this tornado of like cleanliness right now. But you see, it's crazy because how many of you know that when you have three little kids running around, the standard of cleanliness is not quite what you think it should be? Right? And so all of a sudden, you know, yesterday afternoon, Angela's been cleaning. She's done the floors and stuff in the kitchen. And our three kids went out in the backyard. They're enjoying the sunshine. And they decide they're going to make a mud pit in the back garden. Right? Which is all fine and good. They're three little kids. It's like, yeah, I remember making mud pies. Right? You know, doing all that stuff, serving them up, selling them with lemonade, all that kind of thing. Right? But here's the thing. Is that then they decide they want to come back in the house. And they're caked in mud, and they've got mud all over their shoes. And so what do they do? All across mummy's clean floor. Not a wise idea. All right, if you ever come to a house, just don't do it. All right, minefield. But you see, it's crazy, right? Because in that moment, as a parent, you have this decision to make. See, on the one side, you can ream your kids out for being gross and for, dis and for being disgusting and for, you know, for making a mess of your floor and all this kind of stuff, right? Or you can find a way to carry them up to the bathtub, stick them in the shower, and make them clean. And get them to that point where actually they're presentable and they're not going to trash your house, right? And you see, the first response is all about the house being a house, right? It's purely about the function. But the second response flows from the understanding that the house is actually a home, right? That, that when you have people living in your house, it's not always going to be as clean as you want it to be. It's not always going to be as presentable as you want it to be. It's not always going to be as perfect as you want it to be. And things can get a little bit messy, right? Because you're inviting brokenness into your house, right? And you're saying, hey, we have, to, we have to try and find a way to house this and to look after this well. And, you know, in the same way, when it comes to the heart of our church, we're always going to be a church that is about excellence, right? We always want the function of what we do to be to an incredibly high standard because we say, you know what? This is about God. This is about bringing glory to God. It's about bringing honor to God. We always want to be setting that standard because we believe that he is worthy, right? That he's deserving of the best. But we also know that when you're working with people, the brokenness in all of our lives, right? Not just the people that come in, but you and I sitting right here or standing, right? There's brokenness that's actually, that can get messy, can get really messy. Now, this is not a heart that's about, you know, excusing negative behavior. I want you to hear that. But it is about helping and responding in a way that lifts the lives of people. So if they come in as broken people, if they, if they come in and they start making a mess, then actually we come alongside them. We don't stand on the other side of the room and be like, you over there, don't do that. But actually we come alongside them and we're saying, you know what? I'm going to get in the mess. I'm going to pull this person. I'm going to bring them with me on the journey. I'm going to lead them to a place where actually they can get their life cleaned up and they can encounter the grace of Jesus. And you see, that's what I love. 
about who Jesus is. You know, we say that the heart of the house is wrapped up in the person of who Jesus is. Jesus is that perfect balance between truth and grace. He's never about the point your finger thing, but he's also never about just allowing you to keep carrying on in your brokenness. He says, no, let's, let's do this thing together. Let's walk this out. And you see, I believe that every single person that comes in and is a part of his church is going to start to encounter the grace of God and the heart of God in and through you and me. And you see, I believe that the more that people spend time in our church, the more they're going to reflect the heart of the house. Now, I don't know why, for example, the younger brother missed the heart. I don't know why the older brother missed the heart. Other than the fact that I think they didn't spend enough time maybe with their dad. They didn't really catch what he was about, who he was. And that's why it's so important that the culture of our church is healthy, that it's strong. Because our church will always be one that seeks to reflect the heart of Jesus. And the reason for that is that when people come in, we don't want them just to see Vantage Church or Pastor John or Pastor Damien or Pastor Julie or Pastor Andrew, whoever. We want them to to see Jesus. That's what we do. That's why we, we do what we do. And you see, we've got to build a church that is founded on kingdom principle, not on human opinion, not on all that junk that I mentioned earlier, but actually it's founded on kingdom principle. When it comes to love, grace, truth, salvation, honor, service, generosity, community, unity. See, if each one of these things is upheld in who we are as a church, then when people come in, they're going to encounter the person of Jesus because that's who Jesus is. That's who Jesus is. And so the world around us is going to be attracted to the Jesus in us. The more that we have the heart of the house in who we are and what we do, people are going to encounter not just the heart of the Father, but the heart of the grace of Jesus. And I pray that we're always a church that is known as a place of hope and a place of encouragement and a place where the lost can find their way back to their dad, to their heavenly Father. And you know, I don't know how you ended up in this place this morning. I don't know what you're going through in life. I don't know what your experience of church has been. I don't know what your experience of home has been or your family or your dad. But I want to encourage you this morning that there is a heavenly father who loves you deeply. He cares about you. He's given everything to see you come back. He sent his son Jesus to die for you, to forgive you of sin so that you can find your way back into the heart of the house, the heart of heaven. And I want to pray for anybody this morning. And we're going to take a moment right here, right now. And if I could just have every head bowed and every eye closed. I want to give every person in this room an opportunity to respond. See, I believe this morning that you're not here by accident. You're not here by coincidence. Even if a friend brought you or you found us online, whatever it looks like, God sees you. He knows you. And He has a heart for you that is greater than you can ever imagine or understand. You see, sometimes we do this thing where we try and like reason our way back into God's good books. We say, oh, well, if I just do this, if I just come to church enough, or I just give enough money to the church then I'm going to be saved. I'm going to get into heaven. But actually, that's not how it works at all. You see, when you look at the story of the prodigal son, the son comes home. He's reasoning in his head, but the way that the father responds is to run towards him. And in that culture, dads didn't run. Dads didn't run. It was, it was uncool for dads to run in that culture. And yet the heart of the father loved his son so much that he chased after him with everything he had and he threw his arms around him. And all the son had to do was to receive that embrace 